Well, this morning we begin our semester-long section-by-section stroll through the book of James, which is a letter written to Christian believers who were scattered around the Mediterranean region in the first century. You can find it about 30 pages in from the end of the New Testament. Last week, in his introduction to the book of James, Rob reminded us that contrary to first appearances, the book of James is not just a list of a bunch of rules that we need to follow or laws that we need to obey. It is James showing us how love is meant to respond to love. In a sense, every one of these sermons in this series will be part two of a two-part sermon. And the first part for every one of these sermons will be the same. And that is that we are loved by God and that we are called to respond to that love with a life of love of our own. And then part two tells us how in some specific way. So actually to remind us of that, that each part of this letter is built on the previous truth that we are loved and that we are called to live our lives as a response to that love. We've come up with a short reading that we're going to read some form of to begin our messages every Sunday. So I just want to invite you to read this out loud with me. We are the beloved of the Lord. In love, he created us. In love, he came to us. In love, he died for us. In love, he makes us his own, folding us into his love, transforming us by his love, sending us out in his love. By our love, this world will know that we are his. By our love, this world will see him in us as he lives his life of love in us and through us to the glory of God. Amen. Which leads us this morning to James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. One time years ago, we drove out to Colorado for a family vacation, and our Suburban was packed up to the roof rack with, with, uh, with suitcases and bicycles and our four kids. Well, on our way west, we stopped at, outside of St. Louis to get some gas, and I, I, I hopped out, filled up the car with, with gas really quickly, hopped back in, and promptly back straight into the Audi TT that was right behind us uh, being filled with gas at the same time. Boom. We hadn't been in a car for five seconds. Kind of like what happens when we start into the letter that James wrote. In just the second verse of this letter, boom, a collision before we are even 10 feet into the journey. We've hardly buckle, buckled our seatbelts and gotten moving when we run into this. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We actually encounter a double collision in the very first sentence. First, trials of many kinds. Wait, what? What, what do you mean trials? I thought Jesus came to rescue me from all of that stuff. How could bad things happen to me? I thought God was good and powerful and in control. How could he let me suffer? And then a second collision. Whenever you experience trials, consider it pure joy. What in the world? 
I'm still trying to get used to the idea that I'm going to have trials in my Christian life, and now you're telling me that I should enjoy them? Feel the whiplash of that double collision? Before we walk through this passage, and look, there's one thing that I just want to point out that I think is absolutely crucial that we see and spend a little bit of time with. You know that dealing with difficulties in our lives is, is really one of the hardest things for us to reconcile as followers of Christ who believe in a good and powerful God, especially as Christians who've been raised in the comforts and luxuries of the modern world, such as we here in the United States. Where is God when I suffer? What is he up to? Well, I want you to look at this passage again, and I want you to notice specifically this. Notice how many times James mentions God in these verses. Hmm. Not once, right? Which is exactly how it can feel when we find ourselves going through difficult circumstances, like God is nowhere to be found. But now take a closer look. These three verses are filled with action verbs. They describe all kinds of things that are taking place, facing, testing, producing, finishing, making. And these verses also spell out the, the close-at-hand agents that are being used to accomplish those actions. Trials being allowed to come upon you. Trials being used to test you. Those same trials producing perseverance in you. And then that perseverance being allowed to finish its work. And that perseverance being used to make you mature and complete. Now, whose hands are those tools in? Who is the one who is using those agents, those tools, to fulfill his good and loving purposes? The passage doesn't say. It doesn't go that one last step and name the actor, the one who has these agents in his hands and is using them toward the fulfillment of his ends. But his presence and his activity is implied and pointed to in every one of those verbs. So we can look at the same passage and read it in two completely different ways. God's absent. He's not even in the picture. Things are not in his control, and we are just left on our own when things get hard. Or God is here, and he is involved in all things, even in this, working for good. That two ways of seeing dynamic gets at what I'm convinced is at the heart of this book of James, both thematically and literally. You may know that often in ancient works, the most important point of the, the book or letter was found right in the middle of it. Well, when you flip to the middle of the book of James to chapter three, you find a key section in which James contrasts two kinds of wisdom. The first kind of wisdom, wisdom from below, is a way of seeing a world that leaves God out of the picture, and the second kind of wisdom, wisdom from above, is a way of seeing the world that puts God at the center of the picture. And as we'll see as we go through this series, that contrast between those two ways of seeing, one that leaves God out of the picture and the other one that puts God at the center of the picture, is the very thing that James is addressing again and again and again in this letter. 
when we are at a loss as to what to do, when we encounter need in someone before us, when we face temptation, when we feel anger or hurt, when things don't go the way we want them to go, when we're making plans for the future, when we find ourselves sick or grieving or dealing with loss and so on, which will we choose to include God or not? And this passage that we're looking at this morning is a perfect example of those two different ways of seeing. What about when, then, when we are facing difficult circumstances? Where is God then? Well, according to the wisdom of this world, the wisdom from below, he's in the same place that he is in this passage. Nowhere. He is completely absent. He's nowhere to be seen. We're on our own. But according to the wisdom from above, where is God in our difficult circumstances? The same place he is in this passage. Everywhere. Holding trials in his hands as agents that serve and fulfill his good and loving purposes in our lives and holding us in his hands as well. Lord, give us eyes to see you in all things and a resolve in all things to keep you at the center of our vision. All right, now let's walk back through these three verses and just see if we can learn about how difficult life circumstances can become a tool for good in the hands of a good and loving God. Verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Trials is a very broad word. It refers to any of the difficulties and challenges that we face in life. Those specifically connected with living out our faith but also all of those that just come along with living life as broken people in a broken world. Facing trials has less of a sense of standing up against them in a posture of strength, which that translation might suggest, and really has more of a sense of falling into them in such a way that we become surrounded and overwhelmed by them. Jay Phillips puts it, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives. Eugene Peterson translates it, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. They both capture the sense that this trouble, these difficulties, this adversity, these afflictions into which we've toppled, they are all we can see, no matter which direction we look. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Challenges in your friendships, feeling left out or alone, being misunderstood, struggling financially, facing illness or loss, losing a loved one, on and on goes the list with as many variations as there are people in this room and people on this planet. James says we should consider it joy whenever we find ourselves having fallen into such things. It sounds almost absurd. What on earth can he mean? The word consider, I think, is a really interesting one. It doesn't just mean, think about it in this certain way. It's a word that combines together the idea of valuing or esteeming something and the idea of cooperating with it, of, of being willing to be led by it. It's a sort of word that we might use to describe a trusted mentor or a favorite teacher or even a close friend. See your trials as something to be valued and something to be cooperated with, not despised and resisted. 
And James will tell us why we can see them that way in the next two verses. But first, pure joy is where this verse actually begins in the original language. Those are the first two words, intentionally put by James in the place of emphasis in this sentence. You know this, it isn't the trials themselves that are the joy. It is an occasion for joy when we recognize our difficulties as tools in God's hands and we cooperate with this work that God is doing in the midst of our struggles and difficulties. When he speaks of us as his brothers and sisters, James reminds us of two really important things. First, these words were written from a Christian to fellow Christians, to fellow followers of Christ, and they won't make any sense to anyone who hasn't already experienced the love of God through Christ, Jesus suffering, bringing about good in our lives. They won't make any sense for someone who hasn't experienced the love of God through Christ as their starting point. But on top of that, in an indirect way, James reminds us that even when we are in the midst of the most horrific challenges and the darkest days, and we feel all alone, we are never really alone. God has given us each other. I love the moment when Michael began to wander toward his dad up here on the platform last Sunday. And Rob reminded Anne that we are in family. We are, every one of us, always. We are family together, which means we are never really alone. James goes on in verse three to tell us why we can have such a remarkable perspective on the hard things that come upon us. Why can we receive with gladness those moments when we topple headfirst into difficulties and can't see anything but them? Why can we take the hand of suffering and let it lead us? Verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This isn't an intellectual knowledge. This is understanding that comes from personal experience. James says, you've experienced this yourself many times. Look at how God has worked in your lives in the past. Look back at the painful episodes of your life and look at how God has used them when you have drawn him near instead of pushing him away. I agree with commentator Doug Moo that the word testing is really not the best choice of words here. Neither is trying or proving. And those are the most common words that are used to translate this next idea. And, and I think it's too bad. James is not saying that trials are a way that we are tested to see if we've got what it takes. That sure wouldn't be reason for joy. The word we should use here, the one that gets at this meaning best is refining. It's a word filled with hopeful intention and purpose. Refining and smelting, as you're probably aware, is an ancient process of using a furnace or a crucible to heat up metal so hot that it melts. And then once it's melted, all the impurities rise to the surface where they are skimmed off. So the resulting metal, when it cools and hardens again, is even stronger and purer than before. The idea is that going through the heat of difficulties and challenges allows our faith life to become stronger and stronger and stronger in God's hands. So what does all that refining produce? Well, the word translated produce is another one of these words in this passage that is filled with a sense of holy purpose. 
It expresses the idea of something working its way all the way through to an intended outcome. It accomplishes something. It leads to something. It it brings something about. It's an elevator that lifts you up and delivers you to the desired destination. And what is that place? Well, to begin with, we are brought to perseverance. Though, as we'll see in the next verse, that's just the start. Persevering is the quality of pressing on when things are pressing you down. Some versions translate this endurance, but it is really more than that. It's persevering specifically in the faith, patiently staying a course course as a Christian, not just continuing, but continuing to trust God even when it's difficult, remaining steadfast in your devotion to Christ. This isn't just celebrating strength indiscriminately, it's celebrating strength of faith, remaining in a posture of reaching for God's hand even when life is hard. Something that in trials and in suffering, we need to choose to do all over again 50 times a day. So when that happens, when each time a new difficulty comes or hits us with a fresh wave of challenge, we cling to God anew. Then this is what the result is. Look at verse four. This is what it will lead to. This is what it will accomplish. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials lead to persevering faith, but that's not the final destination. Let your perseverance finish its work. That verb, notice this, that verb, let finish, and the next one, that you may be, those verbs are in the passive form, and that's really significant. The result is not something we do. This isn't something we muster up in ourselves in difficult times. This is describing something that is being done in us and to us and through us while we cooperate. It's a whole lot like holding still when you get a shot. You stay put, receiving the injection in the belief that after that stab of pain, something will be at work in you for your own good. In fact, I think that's actually a really helpful image for us to have when we face difficulties. The idea of God being like a physician. In fact, uh, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus encourages us to think about him as being like a doctor who has come to take care of the sick. Twice last year, I willingly let a man stick a knife into my back. Why? Because I knew that it was ultimately for my own good that those surgeons would do their amazing work. Doctors are women and men that we trust so deeply, even though they actively cause us pain and discomfort all the time. Why? Why do we trust them? Because we know that ultimately they desire our best and whatever they are doing, even if it doesn't make sense to us, is towards that end. Our son-in-law, John Matthew, married to our daughter, Corey, is a med student training to be a pediatrician. And when he was here last summer, to attend a wedding with Corey, someone in the wedding party had a little girl who dislocated her shoulder. And he went over to their house and he popped it back into place. Well, from one perspective, you could say that John Matthew went over there and he caused a little girl who was already in a lot of pain, more pain. That would be an accurate description. But from another perspective, everything he did to her, he did in love and for her own good. 
He did what he did to heal her, causing her pain in the moment in order to alleviate her pain in the end and to restore full and proper function to the body. It's the same sort of outcome that is taking place in us when we continue to trust God and cling to him when we persevere in hardship. First, James tells us, that will lead to our becoming mature. It's the Greek word teleos, which means we become as God intended us to be from the start. Fully mature, like a child growing into adulthood with fully developed skills, like an apprentice who becomes a master craftsman, having fully met the standard, like a student who gets a perfect score on an exam and has mastered the material. And second, James says that we become complete with nothing lacking, no part missing, nothing unsound or malformed. I love talking to Aaron, who works at Arconic uh, right before the service, and he told me that there is a parallel process uh, that takes place with aluminum. There's refining and smelting by which you remove the impurities, and then there's a process called alloying where you fold in copper to make it even stronger. And I love this. That is referred to as adding sweeteners. That's what comes, that is the work of God in our lives through these experiences. So this is just fascinating. Think about this. In a sort of kingdom calculus that only makes sense when God is in the equation, this is addition through subtraction. In God's hands, the refining heat of hardship and difficulty allows my impurities of pride and self-importance and ambition or of resentment and unforgiveness, or of lust and greed, or of doubt and despair, or whatever else it is, to surface and to be skimmed off. And then somehow when that process is completed, when there is less of me, I've actually been added to. Missing parts have been filled in. I'm lacking nothing. I'm missing nothing. I'm completely whole, just as God intended. Think of how a sculptor works chipping away all that is not the masterpiece. As Michelangelo said, I love this line, in every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison that lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. That is the work that God is doing. That's James chapter one, verses two to four. That we would become mature, complete, lacking nothing just as the artist envisioned. So what exactly does that mean? Well, James and the other writers of scriptures don't leave us guessing about what that means. We are being sculpted into the same likeness, all of us, and toward the same end. So we don't have to wonder what God is doing when we find ourselves in difficulty. When hardship presses down on us, and when in that hardship we press on in the faith nonetheless, and when we press in toward him, reaching for his hand and clinging to God in our trials, then God uses those hardships to press us more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And as James will remind us in one of the heart verses of this book, that will mean that we will learn more and more to live a life of love. That's what it means to look like Jesus. So, so what are some of the ways that we can expect God to work in our difficult circumstances? 
I'm going to pull this up. This is really another sermon or another whole sermon series. But I would encourage you, uh, in a rare moment during the message, please pull out your phones if you have them with you. And I'd like to encourage you to take a picture of this next slide. This is a, a description of the primary ways that Scripture talks about that God uses painful and difficult circumstances in our lives. And I'd love it if each of you had this and had access to this when you found yourself in difficult circumstances. Let me just race through these. God uses painful circumstances to help us see our need for him and draw us toward himself. Psalm 107, God humbled them. They stumbled. There was no one there to help them. So they cried out to the Lord in their distress. God uses painful circumstances to show us the limits of our resources, of our own strength and of our own strength and wisdom and to teach us to rely not on ourselves, but on him. As Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, being crushed and being overwhelmed feeling as though they're not even going to live. He's not even going to live through it. But through all of that, he learns to stop relying on himself and to start to rely on God alone. God uses painful circumstances to fold us into his arms, to deepen our trust in him and help us to know and rest in the depths of his love. First Peter chapter one talks about suffering, grief, and all kinds of trials. But as a result of that, even though we don't see Jesus, we love him. And even though we don't see him now, we believe in him and we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. God uses painful circumstances to strengthen our hope in the future that he has promised to us in Christ, a hope that encompasses both this life and the life to come. We can rejoice, Paul says in Romans 5, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. That leads to strength of character. That, and that leads to confident hope of our salvation, a hope that will not lead us to disappointment. God uses painful circumstances, as we saw today, to help us to grow spiritually, stretching us in order to strengthen us. God uses painful circumstances Uh, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, to train us up as children of God, shaping us into children who resemble our father and bringing our lives more and more in line with his holy purposes. We are called to endure hardship as the training of children into adults, as discipline, God um, treating us as his own children in order that he might bring about in us what is pleasing to him and that we might share in his holiness. God uses painful circumstances to make us more and more like Jesus, teaching us to live as Jesus lived and to love as Jesus loved, Romans chapter eight. Now we are children. If we are children, then we are heirs. And if if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. We know that in all difficult things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And that, that purpose is told to us Those God foreknew, he is predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God uses painful circumstances to equip us to comfort others, using us to embody the compassion and the care that we've experienced from God and to turn around and share that with others who find themselves in painful circumstances, as as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God uses painful circumstances to reveal his glory to the world, putting his beauty and and majesty on display and giving people a bigger picture of who God is. Jesus is walking along. He sees a man who is born blind from birth. Jesus' disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind? Was it this man or his parents? And Jesus answered them, no, neither he nor his parents. This happens so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. And God uses painful circumstances to give us more of himself. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. 
I'd encourage you to go back and read each of these passages and spend time in them and let these truths sink into you. Some of you know that every year for the past six or seven years uh, in January, I've been going to join together with a group of other pastors in our denomination who pastor churches of uh, similar size. We join together for 48 hours and just spend that time wrestling through ministry challenges and sharing ministry ideas and entering into each other's lives and praying for each other. I just got back from this year's meeting on Friday. And this time we invited a deeply respected leader in our denomination, a retired pastor named Sandy Wilson to come and lead our discussions. And as he and I were driving together to the airport at the end of the time on Friday, we were talking about how God uses difficult circumstances and difficult people to form Jesus in us. I recounted to Sandy that the night before, one of the pastors in this group had shared with me how God had brought him to the absolute end of himself. After years of of success in business, he had become a pastor and he was making a mess of everything that he did. And he was not only ready to quit that pastoral role, but he was ready to leave ministry altogether. He would stay up for hours every night, just pacing back and forth in his room, crying out to God, eventually coming to a place of saying, I just can't do this. And he said, God said to me, Finally, are you ready to let me be everything to you? And he said, yes. And he said that that marked the turning point into a ministry of incredible fruit and faithfulness, as well as a far greater humility and yieldedness and freedom. That morning, as I was driving with another pastor in our group, he shared with me how he had been absolutely blasted by a woman and her father in his congregation as he was seeking to lead her and her family and his church family through the aftermath of her husband's terrible public suicide and how the one thing that he thought he did well as a pastor, which was to offer to comfort to people in hard situations, was being called into question and even mocked by these people. And as a result, on the other side of, of that devastating failure, he finally began to, to fully detach his identity from his calling and to establish it in Christ alone, which is leading to new joy and freedom in Christ and in ministry. And I shared with with Sandy two incredibly hard seasons of ministry for me that led to my throwing myself wide open before God and inviting his deeper work in me and which resulted in, in my growing in character, but also in my carrying out ministry with far greater joy and freedom and love and faithfulness. Sandy, at that point, sat up in his seat. He spun to look at me, his eyes wide open, a huge childlike grin on his face and full of passion. He said, is there any other way? I mean, really, isn't it true that our only progress toward Christ-likeness comes as God allows us to walk through difficulties such as those? It's certainly been my experience. In her wonderful book, The Dialogue, which is like an early version of Jesus' calling written in the 1300s, in the midst of the plagues that struck Europe and took the lives of so many, Catherine of Siena pictures God saying this to us as his children. I send people troubles in this world so that they may know that their goal is not this life and that these things are imperfect and passing. I am their goal. And I want them to want me. And in this spirit, they should accept such things. So God's invitation to us this morning, consider it pure joy, 
my brothers and my sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Would you pray with me as our worship team comes up? I'm just going to ask you some questions and encourage you to respond to the Lord in silence. What sort of hardship do you find yourself facing right now? Where is God in your suffering? Are you leaving him out of the picture? Or are you letting him have his place at the center and seeing everything else with reference to him? How are you doing at continuing to reach out to him and cling to him, even when your breath is taken away by the pain of all that surrounds you and brings you down? Where are you beginning to see evidence of God at work, even in these painful circumstances in which you find yourself? In what way, in addition to everything else that God is doing, in what way are you experiencing our faithful and trustworthy God? <music>